This is for your ears only, the audio series that takes some deep dives into the world of podcasting. I'm Martin Spinelli. And I'm Lance Dan. And today on For Your Ears Only, we're going to look at lessons in success. Yes, this is the episode you've probably actually always wanted us to do, where we tell you how to have a massive, huge podcast hit. Now, we've interviewed some of the biggest podcasters in the world, and we're going to tell you their secrets to having a hit top podcast that will take you from being an indie producer to being a massive international figure with fame and fortune. Wait, you're kidding, right? We're, we're academics, Lance. We never make anything that easy. No, neither that easy nor that popular or <laughs> lucrative. That'd be the last thing we'd ever want to do. No. What we actually have done is we've gone out and we've spoken to these podcasts. We've spoken to the producers of shows like Law, My Dad Wrote a Porno, Night Vale. They've all gone on this journey mm. from indie to, you know... Massive. Massive global success. And we're going to try and find commonalities in their stories. The threads that run through them that teach us not just about how they got to be successful, but teach us about podcasting. So that's what we're looking at today, how podcasts grow their audience and go viral and what we can take out of that. And we're not the first people to tackle this subject at all. This is a subject that gets talked about perhaps more than any other subject in the world of podcasting. How to get an audience, how to capture an audience, how to hold an audience, and how to monetize an audience. So what I thought would be fun, Lance, is maybe we should go online right now and do a quick Google for some tips on how to capture a podcast audience. Right. So what we're going to do is just look at what other people are saying about okay. how to be successful. Right. And and um, first of all, we've got 10 podcasting commandments here. Ooh. Number four, okay. after a guest takes time to appear on your podcast, send a thank you email. God, like, did my mother write that? Yeah. Create a slogan for your podcast. A slogan. Hey, yeah, one. yeah. Deep dives. There you go. John, what have you got? Um, I found this company that will do it all for you. Mm. You don't have to worry about any tips. Mm. You just pay them a few grand and they guarantee to boost your audience numbers. By getting someone on Fiverr to uh, artificially put your podcast yeah, in the charts. Which, which they're paying £10 pounds to, probably. That sounds like a good, we should look into good that Good business afterwards. model, yeah. Um, here's, here's one. Use production elements when appropriate to enhance your mix and don't overdo it or distract. So uh, we need a bit more content, content, not just our voices. No. Here's one. Ask your audience what they like and do more of that. So in our case, it would be like the audience episode, the drama episode, <laughs> probably more like the this intimacy episode. episode the, the intimacy episode, the aesthetics episode, the ethics episode, yes. Avoid presenters with American accents and make them quieter in the mix. It says this here in crayon. That's interesting. Uh, I think yes, we should uh, do that. For... Given that podcasting is an American form, avoid sarky British irony at all costs. So look, a lot of this stuff is analyzing your podcast and analyzing your audience and trying to shape your content for them. That's the message. Actually, the podcasters we interviewed tell a very different story. What we're going to do is look at what they told us, where those keys for success came in, and then break them down and see what we can learn from them. So what I'd like to do now is to start by introducing the for your ears only four rules on how to have a massively successful indie podcast. Now, Lance, you promised we weren't going to do this. We are academics. Shut up, Martin, and make it successful. Okay, rule number one. You're free to do what you like, so basically do what you like. 
Scroobius Pip says this, Aaron Mankey says this, Joseph Fink and Jeffrey Craner say this, the porno gang says this, everyone. Everyone says basically you're, you're your own boss and so make whatever show you want to make. So that seems an odd first step to success, choose whatever you want to make, but what the hell? But it's fundamental to podcasting. If you think about broadcast media, in that more traditional mode, you're kind of, as a producer, you're in someone else's space. You're borrowing their studio time, you're borrowing their airtime, you're borrowing your audience. Whereas a podcaster, it is your space. You own it. So if you don't have to answer to anyone, you can do whatever you like. So just do it. That's yeah. it? You're not. The most successful out there come from that space that's kind of honest. And they're not because you're not having to sell it to a commissioner and you're not having to root your ideas through someone else. You're making your own judgments. And the best podcasters we talk to have that kind of very delicate and essential quality that we talk about in the audience show. We ended up that show discussing that which is this concept of authenticity. Yeah, so an authenticity, it's a really, really loaded concept and has a long history in art and music. And it's, it's complicated and it's a bit problematic. And when I think about authenticity in a kind of, with my critical hat on, I go immediately to John Berger, the famous British art and cultural critic who in the 1970s saw how authenticity was often just a narrative told by art historians as a way of valuing or privileging something they liked and devaluing something that they didn't like. He said that it had no material reality. But on podcasting, it's quite different. It's really come to mean a kind of dedication to a passion project, which doesn't really think about audience in any careful way, but it puts the project first. And you're making those decisions. Let's just kind of simplify it because actually... Those concepts about authenticity get mixed up around indie culture, around, say, punk culture, and, you know, the, the fights over, like, which hip-hop artist is authentic or not. Very simply in podcasting, it means you're making the show that you want to make because you're in charge of it. And a really good example of someone that we interviewed talking about this was the comedian Richard Herring. So Richard Herring, he's an English comedian who's been around for about 20 years or more, and he had a, a TV career, but uh, a few years ago, he decided to start working on a podcast. Podcasting coming in in 2008, I was gone, I'd gone through a little bit of a wilderness period and just like feeling a bit depressed that things weren't happening, they were happening as quickly as they had done sort of five years previously. But then I just sort of thought, you know, I can do stuff myself, I can put out whatever I want online. And, uh, you know, you have an idea and then you can put it out within I mean if you have the idea in the moment it can be and you can put it out live if you want you can have an idea and it's out whereas you have an idea on the radio and then six months later you record it and six months later it's put on and you know things have changed so people are going oh why don't you put the Les Square Theatre podcast on TV and you go well hey I you know I don't have the power to do that on my own but also I'm not sure it would work on TV because it's you know the beauty of it is it's long and it's very rude and it's very private really and so that's why i think the guests open up whereas if you put it on tv it would be edited there'd be adverts people would be much more conscious of what they were saying we could do some kind of version of it and i'm not saying i wouldn't do it but why do that when you're in total control one of the really th interesting things we talked about was a show actually i only managed to listen to about eight minutes of before it drove me mad <laughs> and it's a podcast that richard herring does called me versus me oh yeah and it's him playing himself at snooker and commentating on himself as he does it. Oh, and a fire. This is, they both seem fired up at least. And uh, oh, slightly unlucky there for me. One, it was a, you could hear it was a crack of a shot, wasn't it? And these, both the pink and the brown, blue, brat are right by the center pocket, but maybe in each other's way. He's going to go for the pink. 
Oh, he hasn't got it. He had to go too far. But it's 1 0 to me 1. I don't need Robot Voice to tell me that. Yeah, like you, I find me versus me almost unlistenable. It wouldn't exist in any other format. And this is something that, that Herring is aware of. The me one versus me two snooker, that's me really attempting to be overtaken by the characters within me. And for me to lose myself within those characters and they speak and they say whatever they want to do. A lot of it's just about the silliness of me investing my time doing it and you investing your time listening to it. That's the, that's almost the artistic contract within it is that it's a waste of time and it's stupid and it's pointless. But within that, there's there's something to explore. And that's what's so interesting about me versus me because he says it's a waste of time. Mm. And the one thing you don't do in broadcast media is waste time because airtime is money. It's precious. It's yeah. precious because it's something you're either selling to advertisers or is being paid for by the license fee. Yeah. And here he is willingly admitting that he's putting out something that's pointless. And it's kind of like that's encompassed it because he wants to. And a small niche of his audience will engage with that. This podcast is brought to you by Martin and Lance's never-ending appreciation for the sound of their own voices. Why wouldn't you want to hear them bleat on about podcasts for 40 to 45 minutes? They're fascinating. It doesn't even matter that Adam Buxton's not in it. But Martin and Lance are not alone. In this, and also, you know, generally in life. Across the world, there are literally millions of people who can't shut up for more than five minutes. And it's taking a toll on their personal relationships. If this is you, stop talking over us and listen, because we've got a special offer for you. What you need to do is get yourself a podcast. With your own podcast, you can record your very own thoughts, theories and ideas onto MP3 files and release them onto the internet. Your podcast will then convert your personality into simple, easy-to-digest chunks, making it easier for people to be around you in real life. Then your friends and family will be able to download and enjoy your opinions at their own leisure. Or not, in some instances. But at least you'll have got it all out of your system. Podcasting. It might be time-consuming, but... Divorce is expensive. So it sounds like we're saying that for rule number one, there are no rules. You make them up as you go along because it's a show that you're making for yourself. And that sort of brings us to rule number two, doesn't it? Yeah, which is you are the audience. So put simply, make sure that you enjoy the work that you're producing. Right. And this kind of goes back to something that I sort of became aware of in my professional life when I was working in New York with an avant-garde theatre company called the Worcester Group. Because previous to that, I'd worked at the BBC and I'd been working in the drama department and I was very much aimed at a particular audience for Radio 4. 45 plus, ABC One social class, and you're constantly shaping your material, imagining what they might like. And then I went to the Worcester Group and do these extraordinary avant-garde plays and things are crashing around on stage and it's chaos and exciting. And I remember they, we used to have these sort of post-show discussions or Q&As with the audience. And someone asked us, who do you make your work for? And the dramaturge, Kate, said, we make work for ourselves. We make work that resonates with us in the room, that entertains us, that moves us. And we just assume that there's other people like us out there who get it. And I thought, oh my God, you know, this, after all this word of focus groups and, and trying to prejudge your audience... Just make stuff that works for you in the room in that moment. Why can they do that? Because it was their theater, mm. their space. You come in there as a, almost like a, you know, you pay your ticket, but you come into their space 
and then you you, you know it's kind of like their rules. Mm. So if radio is broadcasting, where you're trying to appeal to a mass audience, podcasting is narrow casting, and so that means you can decide who your audience is. And maybe the best advice to follow is to follow your own Wooster Group method. Make sure you're entertained, and almost certainly someone in your audience will be entertained. That brings us back to the authenticity issue. This idea that a presenter is delivering off a script, right? They're delivering words that they don't own, and we're used to that in broadcast media. We never imagine that a newsreader really is dying to tell us about that day's stock market, are we? <laughs> no. Whereas in podcasting, that's kind of the default state that we're talking as honestly as we can and not getting these words channeled into us. Yeah, it's it's another opt-in medium, right? It's like avant-garde theater. Why would I listen to a podcast if, if someone didn't believe what they were saying? A really good interview we did on the subject was with Scroobius Pip. He was a DJ and a rapper, ran a record label, really involved with hip-hop previously and did a sort of specialist music show, but he gave it up to do a podcast called Distraction Pieces, which is all over the place. Mm. It's really eclectic. It's got celebrity interviews. It's got very intense discussion of politics. It confronts social issues and brings people in for quite sophisticated conversation on these sort of topics. And then he's got episodes where he just gets drunk with his friends <laughs> and they blabber at each other. And he can do what he likes with his show. And he does what he likes because there's trust with his audience, that his audience... You know, there's meant to be this authenticity that they understand each other and work with each other. I like I like having the variation. If you have a week where you've got a few listeners who are like, oh, I'm not into the drunk cast. It's like, that's cool. Like, there's going to be another episode next week and it won't be a drunk cast. That's what's great about podcasts is you don't have a commissioner or whoever else who's saying, oh, oh that's not going to appeal to everyone. They can be niche at times. You, you can have certain weeks where it's such a specific subject, it's not going to appeal to everyone, but... That's what's great about it. That wouldn't that conversation wouldn't happen if it was was put in front of a marketing committee or whoever else because I'd say no, there's not an audience for that. So, well, there there is. It just might be a bit smaller, but that's still a, a valid audience. I've done enough and shown them enough quality that they have the trust to go. I'll give that a listen, and that's kind of that's kind of amazing. So that was Scroobius Pip talking about distraction pieces, and the interesting thing about him, well, one of the interesting things about him is that he's got a stammer. Mm. And that is all part of the package. That sense that he's not cleaning up his language, that he's not processed, that his glitches and faults are all in there is all heightening that sense of authenticity, I think. But Lance, isn't one of the problems with maintaining this original, authentic, real voice that at some point you as a podcaster are going to have to sell something? Isn't that implied in the, in the freemium economy of the podcast world? And does, isn't that essential? So unless you're grant funded or have a massive private income, you're going to have to sell something. And it's, it's hard to maintain, isn't it? This is it. These are the problems with advertising that we've kind of identified within podcasting. So there are a bunch of different kinds of advertising that pop up in podcasting, but what is thought to be the most successful is something called native advertising, right? Yeah, this is what Rob Walsh from Lidsyn and Nick Quar from HotPod talked to us about being the most successful form of podcasting advertising. The in deeply embedded advert where the host themselves sells the product and tells us about how fantastic the product is. 
If any of these issues about podcasting are interesting to you, you can buy a copy of our book, Podcasting, the no, Audio Media Revolution, no. out now from Bloomsbury. This is a, this is, the whole show is an advert for the book. You don't need to do that within... Is it? Yeah, it kind of is. <sighs> okay. It's all one giant advert people listen to. That's <laughs> why we're working on scripts. <laughs> you think I'd actually make this show? No, never mind. <laughs> Anyway, look, but that, okay, that fact that someone has to sell something, right? Mm. We actually do believe in the book that we wrote Absolutely. and we want to sell it and we want people to read it, which is why, even though we're working on scripts, it's still, we're doing this because we want to, but we're not selling anything else. If I had to stop and sell a Casper mattress in the middle of this mm. or tell you about how great Blue Apron is in the middle of this, it would break that sense of authenticity because you'd be going... Okay, then I don't believe Lance actually has any particular interest in Casper mattresses. He's being paid to say it. And that shatters the idea of authenticity. Yeah. So how do some podcasters cope with this issue of advertising? We've found five ways. That another list. So we've got another list of how podcasters can deal with the discordance of having to sell something whilst maintaining a sense of authenticity with their audience. Okay. Okay. Ready? Yes. Number one, lie and get on with it. <laughs> Just say the advert, you know, take, take your medicine, grit your teeth and move on. As an aside note, can I say how difficult it is as an academic to actually uh, record and trace podcast adverts? Because of dynamic advertising, they kind of evaporate and vanish. So I've heard Nick van der Kolk on Love & Radio sell silver underwear at the end of the most moving piece. <laughs> And I was, oh my God, this is genius. And then you go back and because of the dynamic advert, it's moved on, it's rolled on, it's vanished. So dynamic advertising, that's when a podcast online, the adverts change over time. Yeah. I would say there's a culture thing here. You Americans are really good at selling stuff in a shameless way, where actually English people are slightly embarrassed and uptight about it. So I'd say this is a particularly American approach. which More is More cultural difference. Lie and get on with it. So what's the second one? This is what I like to call the Jad Abum Rad approach. It's when you make the advert as bad as possible and as clunky as possible to distinguish it from the main content of the podcast. Here's Jad Abumrad from my interview with him a couple of years ago, talking about how they were wrestling with advertising on Radiolab at that time. One of the most contentious conversations at the show, there is a real pressure for Robert and I to read the ads because the people who sell the ads, and I want those people to succeed, they can sell host ads for a lot more than the others. And so we went 10 rounds about that, like, should Robert and Jed read the ads? It's an ethical conversation. It's also an aesthetic conversation. Like, ethically, should we be reading advertising? Part of me feels like, no, I want, I want that line to exist. But part of me is like, eh, it's not, I don't want to be precious about it. Like, I really want this thing to work financially for the station. I mean, right now, so much of these podcasts are public radio podcasts that have just made the transition. So they're carrying the sort of good name of public radio with them. And so as we read ads, people are like, ah, they're just reading, they're just reading ads. They're, they're still like doing the good mission-driven public radio stuff. So they're cutting us some slack, you know? How long are they going to cut us some slack? I, I wonder about that. Like in two or three years when this sort of shine wears off, I feel like it might actually get genuinely corrosive to have people who are doing the work also then doing the business thing. The other thing is the aesthetic thing. It's like those ads are like kind of weirdly powerful and that it's like, oh, so-and-so in Schenectady 
driving her car with my sister and she's really drunk because we were just at a concert. But Radiolab supported by so-and-so, like that is a chance for like the the world that we're talking to to be mirrored in the product, you know? And they hear themselves and we hear them and it's just this delightful little moment and, and the world feels bigger when you hear those voices. And so we didn't want to sacrifice that on behalf of ads because some of the advertisers hate hate it when listeners read it because the listeners don't pronounce things properly or they don't sound polished. So we, we fought them back and forth and our compromise has been that we'll keep the listeners doing it Robert and I will do it as well, but we'll do it in that same way where it's through the phone, bad audio, which feels to me like a kind of a clumsy compromise, but that's, that's where we're at. Let's have a quick listen to a snatch of an advert off Radiolab. So here's Robert Krulwich doing an ad on Radiolab recorded on his phone. Hi, I'm Robert Krulwich. Radiolab is supported by City Cards with Android Pay. How cool is it that we live in a world where you can use the same device to listen to Radiolab and buy your morning coffee, groceries, and more? And did I mention it's a super fast way to pay? Download the Android Pay app on Google Play or visit city.com slash Android Pay to get started. And it sounds bad, doesn't it? That, it does that, sound was, bad. that was awful. I mean, in terms of like the rough quality, they are not, they're making it clear. It's almost like a sense of like the adverts beneath them. Yeah, a little bit. And he, because you, you know he can read his lines better than that. But the third technique okay. is actually endorse the product. And here I'm thinking of Caitlin Prest on the heart and Mitra Kaboli on the heart and Scrooby's Pip and Distraction Pieces, where they actively endorse products that they use and believe in. So with the heart, what do they sell? Uh, they have adverts for Bayland.com, which is an online sex toy retailer. And that fits perfectly with their show. And you can think, okay, then, yeah, they probably do use those sex toys. Uh, whereas with Scroobius Pitt, with distraction pieces, he talks about how he tries to choose products he actively uses, whatever they are. Lance, what's, what's number four? Number four is the English response, okay. which is take the piss out of the product. By sh- and that way, you sort of appear to be above selling it by mocking it. And I say it's the English response because this is something that Richard Herring talks about where on his show, he'll invite people in and then he, in front of an audience, will mock them and yet they'll still benefit. I always said I wouldn't do adverts and I don't, you know, and I haven't had to do adverts. Uh, but then there's also now part of me that thinks, well, the, you know, that adverts sort of are the way that the internet is funded. And so, you know, that, I, think, I think that's, I think people know the stuff I've done is always quite, you know, we do a little product placement thing in, in the show and there's only been two or three of them. And, you know, and then it's a, it's a clunking little thing in the you middle. You destroyed someone for their poster, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, no, yeah. I'm not a well, Nietzsche destroyer. did, but it, I'm, sure it, I'm sure it paid off for that guy. I think that was the best one, so I'm sure he got his money back. Let's do some product placement, Armando. Look, this okay. is why this is a perfect man. This Richard, is really what good. have you got for us this week? I want to see <laughs> <laughs> what this is, Armando. What do you think about this? This is a, like a poster, but it's of an entire book. This one is 1984. That is the whole text of 1984 on a poster. Up on a board. That's handy, Richard. Yeah. (laughs) So there you go. So you can get those online. They're they're very nice. No, hang on, hang on. What? What do you mean you can get those online? (laughs) Get them in. There's loads of things. And then do what with them? (laughs) Put them on your wall. Put them on your wall. You're meant to help me. Don't make the man in who made that. He's been going for five years. He's really nice. I don't care. One time I got like offered, you know, ten thousand dollars to do three of the, to do one of those website things in in uh, three episodes, but they wanted me to break off in the middle of the podcast 
And I just thought, my audience, it's in front of an audience, they're all going to laugh and think it's a joke. And then you're not going to pay me because you'll think it's sarcastic. And the other person who talks about this is Helen Zultzman, who ran a podcast called Answer Me This. And she talks about the first time she took advertising from Audible. With Audible, the first time we did it was quite reverent. But then later in the show, we just happened to be talking in, in just the normal part of the show about Hitler listening, about someone listening to an audiobook of Mein Kampf on the toilet. And the guy at Audible said more of that. And we thought, that's amazing that he he is in favour of us just treating it like the rest of our content and being irreverent and slightly insulting the product because he knew that it doesn't damage the product at all to, to slightly take the piss. It actually makes people trust it more. So if the Americans feel they're above advertising by doing them badly, the Brits feel they're above advertising by taking the piss. Is that right? Yeah, I think that is that kind of cultural difference. But the fifth way, and it's probably the the cleverest way of dealing with adverts is to make them an active part of the show, to actually embrace them. And you hear this really clearly in Adam Buxton on his podcast. He's an English comedian and he makes these lovely little songs that kind of become earworms and stick with you. One morning my wife looked at me and said, I'm in distress. I am not sleeping properly, we need a new mattress. I ordered up a Lisa and soon it had arrived. It was standing in a box with Lisa written on the side. When I took it out the box, it unrolled then expanded. It was soft yet firm as my wife had demanded. It's my Lisa mattress, my Lisa mattress, my Lisa mattress. And the thing about that is that actually those songs are a feature that people really like. And I have found myself sort of humming, Lisa Mattress, Lisa Mattress. And it's like, damn, damn, Adam, you're so clever because you've done it on both levels. You've put the advert in there and it's working because I'm remembering it and it's funny. And the other show that does this really cleverly is The Black Tapes. Mm. The Black Tapes is a drama podcast, but it's all verite. It's set up like it's a real investigative. Like serial. Yeah, it's an investigative podcast network with a whole bunch of shows, and these are real people doing these shows. So when the reporters break off and sell you socks or mattresses or whatever in the middle of their investigation, it actually heightens it because it makes it seem real, more real that they're doing this. And it kind of increases that sense of verite. Yeah. And it's like that perfect thing of like, actual fact, you're making the show stronger and better. You're helping us suspend our disbelief by getting your host to advertise stuff. Because we all hear ads on podcasts. Yeah. So just to recap, here are the five ways that podcasters often deal with this stumbling block of advertising. One, lie and get on with it. Two, make the adverts as bad as possible. Three, actually endorse the product and believe in it. Four, Take the piss out of the product. And five, make the advert an active part of the show. Right. And that's how they can stumble through the discordance around podcasting. For your ears This podcast is brought to you by my lack of success in traditional career paths. Proper jobs? Who needs them? Too much recognition or financial stability are bad for the soul. And I'm not the only one. If you're like me and things haven't gone quite the way you'd planned, then get yourself a podcast. What does money compare to the feeling of adoration you get from your tens of listeners? So, 
If you want to be an artist, but don't care what things look like. If you've tried working in telly, but can't stand the people. If you want to work in radio, but no one will let you. Then podcasting might just be for you. And you don't even have to fill out an application form to get one, giving you more valuable time to watch YouTube videos about productivity. Come on, get a podcast. What's the worst that could happen? That no one listens? So that's great. So successfully negotiating advertising in your podcast means big money. That means that we can get a bigger studio. That means we can hire Alan Hall to produce something gorgeous. That means our show is going to sound Whoa. as slick no, no, as no, possible, no, no, right? No, 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 no. Thanks that. This is rule free, Ugh. which nullifies that because rule free states for independent producers, low fidelity equals high engagement. All right. And this kind of brings us to one of your absolute favorite tropes about podcasting, Martin, which is intimacy, because low fidelity can create an experience that's more intimate. So we've been talking about intimacy in this series a number of times and in our book, and it's this really sticky, wonderful melange of things like tone of voice and timbre of voice, like direct and singular individual communication to a listener. It's marked by things like honesty and openness, and there's often like a touch of doubt and uncertainty about it. It's pretty much the opposite of the way you hear most politicians speaking. And all of these things work together to invite a kind of empathy or create a human bond or connection that gets stronger the closer you listen. And it's, it's really hard to fake. So this is why ideas like perfection in sound don't matter so much. In actual fact, those imperfections can make it sound more raw and more real. If you've ever heard the beginning of an Adam Buxton show, to go back to him, he introduces them all by taking his dog for a walk, and he's probably just recording it on his iPhone. Mm. And it's kind of rambly and shambolic and really personal because you're going on a little walk with Adam Buxton. And it's that thing. It's, it's got that authenticity as well, my favourite word. And the people who were really good at talking about this in their interviews were the producers of My Dad Wrote a Porno, which is uh, Jamie Morton, James Cooper, and Alice Levine. Their show is based on the reading and the discussion, a lot of mockery of a series of pornographic novels that Jamie Morton discovered his father had written. But now a big part of their process is that they record these shows not in a studio, which they could afford, and Alice works at the BBC, so they have lots of access, um, uh, but they record it in one of their homes. So let's listen to them talk about My Dad Wrote a Porno. We record it the same way that we did right at the beginning, actually. We all have a microphone each. It's, it is very lo-fi. It's in, our, it's in one of our kitchens each week. We like to cook for each other and then have a couple of glasses of wine and start recording. Um, and we just have a microphone each, and we record it through GarageBand on our computers, we just really enjoy it being a bit of a kitchen table project, really, and that it is genuinely three friends chatting around the kitchen table about something that is quite intimate. You know, my dad writing this book. And we kind of feel that if it ain't broke, don't fix it, really. It's, it, it really works for us, I think. I'm, I'm not sure what the upgrade would be, other than, I suppose, for like sound quality, we could do it in a studio, but then I think we'd lose some of the atmosphere that we get because we're relaxed and we're at home especially with the footnotes guests I think that they see it as something completely different to being sort of ferried into another studio it doesn't it doesn't feel like a like a work 
booking. It feels like they're yeah, there exactly. now. So I think for what you'd gain with maybe sharpness of audio, you'd maybe lose an atmosphere. I think what people like, and this was by design, we never wanted it to feel like an in-joke that you were eavesdropping on. I think people feel as though they're the fourth person at the table. So what they're discussing there is podcast production as a kind of immersive experience. You close your eyes and you're in there with them. This is podcasting as a form of companionship. Yeah, it's an immersive experience where you can close your eyes and imagine what it might be like to have real friends. Oh, oh, burn, as my son would say. But actually, like, there's almost like this fetishization amongst podcasters about having this lo-fi set up, being removed from the processes and the technology. Uh, the producers of Night Vale, Law, Porno, Hip, everyone says, oh, well, I don't understand RSS feeds. And they all tell stories about beginning with like the $70 USB microphone as being the, the kind of building block of their show. And this is something that uh, David Hazeman Halsh writes about, who's a theorist, and he's written about music culture and the way that was a big part of punk and indie culture, this sort of deliberately lo-fi attitude. And it's the same applies to indie podcasters. Mm. But there's a limit to this lo-fi aesthetic, isn't there? And I'm thinking particularly of Helen Zaltzman, who talks about it quite a lot. Here's Helen Zaltzman. I think people often equate certain things with inauthenticity that they shouldn't. So a lot of people think that editing is lying and wrong. Or a lot of people think for it to seem authentic, it has to seem scrappy. And I think that is such a bullshit correlation. Um, and even before podcasting, I had friends who were like, if it's bad, that means it's good. And I was like, no, it doesn't. It doesn't have to sound slick and professional. But I think with podcasting, you you totally can do that garage band setup and you can produce something that sounds amazing without, without much financial outlay and without much knowledge. And that to me is what is wonderful about it. Um, I think when you're making films, then your lack of budget and resources is so much more evident than in audio. Um, I think the audience is fairly um, attuned to inauthentic hosting. I think they, they're they very aware when they're kind of being misled or, or where the personality is disingenuous. This episode of For Your Is Only is brought to you by Martin and Lance's shameless need to promote their new book, Podcasting, The Audio Media Revolution. Did they mention they have a book? They have a book. For those of you who don't know, a book is like a podcast, but made of paper. Yes, that's right. Podcasting for your eyes. The future is here. Unlike a podcast, you can hold the book in your actual hands and buy it online in exchange for something you may remember called money. So if you like books and if you like podcasts, then this might be the book about podcasts for you. Do buy it if you can. If you don't, Martin will cry. And don't even get me started on what Lance would do, laugh sincerely. Oh, shit! Something that comes of achieving this authenticity that you're talking about and that Helen Zaltzman and the porno gang are all talking about is that rags to riches moment, right? And maybe the best example of this is Aaron Mankey's lore. Mankey is a great example of our rule number four, right time, right product. 
So this, of course, is the argument that a podcast only becomes successful because it was lucky and was released at just the right time. Is that right? Yeah, that's kind of doing it down a bit just to say it's mere luck. But you have to be in the right situation to have the right show that is released at just the right point. Has a little slice of luck for it to grow. And this is something that has certainly happened to Aaron Mankey because he's gone from being a home producer to Law's become a global franchise. It's got a multi-part series on Amazon, hundreds of millions of downloads of free books. It's a massive, massive thing. So it occurs to me that he ticks the boxes for our first three rules. Number one, he did what he liked. Right. He is an indie podcaster. He was a self-published author who decided to take his work on and to make an audio version. He was in control of that. Number two, he produces shows that he himself wants to hear. He'd written these three or four tales, which were based on real life incidents. And, you know, this was before he got into podcasting. And he sort of says he decided to junk them. And he sort of put them into his trash on his computer. And the next day he thought, actually, no, I'll get them out of the trash and I'll, I'm going to read them. Hell, they'll be like little audio stories. And why did he want to do it? Because he wanted to put them out, because he thought there was something in those stories he liked. And he figured, oh, you know, other people might like it as well. And they became the first three or four episodes of Law. And number three, he has a very low-tech approach. Yeah. I mean, he says, again, I don't understand RSS feeds. I don't understand the technology. But what he did understand was markets. And he understood how to take his work out to people, how to, you know, he'd been a graphic designer before, so all the imaging around it was really strong. And when it went viral, he certainly knew how to capitalize on that and grow on that because he'd been working with social media for so many years. And Lore was released just after Serial came out, which had drawn a lot of attention to this thing called podcasting. And Serial itself was an example of really perfect timing. It launched just after Apple released its iOS 8 with its baked-in podcasting app, which made podcasts much more accessible to much more people. Yeah. And it's not to say that Serial was lucky. It was a perfect product to come out at that time in 2014 and to grow in those circumstances. It was just the right product in the right time. And the guys who produced Black Takes, back to that again, Paul and Terry, they talk about how they'd actually been developing a sort of serial-esque investigator-led paranormal podcast in the run-up to Serial. And then when Serial came out, they went berserk and they're really funny. They, you know, they, they talked about the panic they had, thinking, God, someone else is going to do this. Someone else is going to do this. And they got it out just at the right moment in 2014, 2015, to capitalize on serial success, but they'd already be making it before. And again, that isn't to do Black Tate's down because it's the perfectly formed example of that kind of podcast. And, you know, that's been a huge success afterwards. And Rob Walsh of Libsyn is really good about discussing this. He says that all of these shows are great products, but the timing of their release was super fantastic, super immaculate. And that's kind of... It sort of reminded me a little bit of, uh, do you know Malcolm Gladwell? Yes, yeah. Right, and the kind of pop sort of culture psychologist writing that he does. He writes about this in Outliers, his book about successful people, where he says, for instance, if you want to be a hugely successful oil baron in America, you had to be born in a certain period in a certain place, and then you could become a Rothschild. Outside of that envelope of time, the opportunity wasn't there. But Lance, to refocus this on indie podcasting, it sounds a bit depressing. It sounds like you're saying there was this moment in 2014, 2015, and it's gone. So so indie podcasters are never going to have a moment like that again. Honest to God, that's my worry, is that that little bubble has popped. 
And now as the space gets taken over by you know, franchise podcasts and highly... Celebrities. You know, celebrities and, and so on. Then how will the indie pop through? Okay, so let's just recap the four rules for successful indie podcasts that we've been talking about here on the show. Number one, do what you like. Number two, make work that entertains yourself. Number three, don't sweat the tech. And number four, you've just got to be lucky with the timing of the release. But that's not much of a career or business plan, is it? Especially where you're giving your product away. And yeah, if you went to a business loan manager and said, you know, I'm just going to do kind of what I want and assume there's people like me and you never know, I might get lucky. Yeah. And I don't really think about my audience. Yeah, and, I don't really do that. Yeah. Assume they're like me and I, do, you, do you want any technology? No, thanks. And no. I'm going to take the piss out of my advertisers. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that, okay, that, that's, that's kind of not the best business plan. So this is where the networks come in, right? Yeah. The way that a podcast network functions is it involves signing away some of the freedoms that you have as an indie and in return you get security. So for instance, this is something that Alex Bloomberg talks about with running Gimlet is that he, you know, keeps on mentioning that his producers get a paycheck. Mm. They get sick pay and holiday pay. But you know what? They're working for Gimlet and they're having to pitch their ideas to Alex and mm. it feels like a little bit more like a broadcast model. Yeah. And the Radiotopia network is slightly different in that they have more freedom and independence, but it does feel like they're working as part of a collaborative collective union almost. Yeah. There, there's a protection around Radiotopia in terms of the division of their advertising money and their sponsorship money and some of the crowdfunding money as well is divvied out between them all. And they have to share a particular ideal. I think the thing about Radiotopia is it's so tightly curated. Mm. There's only, what, a few dozen, sh a dozen shows? About 20 at the moment. Yeah, and therefore it's quite a walled environment for those shows, you know, functioning within it do benefit but it's still only a tiny, tiny number of shows. And what they do offer is they take away some of the tech burden. They manage the feeds to iTunes and other aggregators. They do fundraising work. They do marketing work. They, they, they provide that kind of support for these otherwise independent producers. But perhaps one thing to say is that, yeah, this fetishization of independence is perhaps not the be-all and end-all. So... People might be producing work for free, uh, but they're producing work for free without any protection in what you call in our book the neoliberal shark tank. Yeah, that's a term that comes from the sociologist Andrew Ross, where the producers are sort of, you know, they're competing with each other to survive. And actually just managing to survive is an achievement in itself. And you know what? We're all still functioning under Apple. So we're not really independent. Alex Bloomberg says, you know, Apple could change this all with a click of a mouse or a yeah. switch of a button. End the whole podcasting <laughs> scene. It's all good. And hell, who's making the most money out of it? Is it all the podcasters scrabbling around? For Blue Apron money and Squarespace money? Yeah. I think not. Or is it the people who make the, you know, the headphones that you listen to this thing on? You know, they're the multi-billionaires in this situation. So at the end of this show... When we've been talking about, you know, how to be successful as an independence, perhaps the fifth law is that there's something more important going on than just trying to stand on your own two feet, which is actually recognizing that you're part of a community, you're part of a scene. Yeah, and this helps ameliorate some of the burnout that a lot of really, really hardworking producers feel. They get something back from this community, not just of listeners, but also the community of podcast producers. It's something that Scroobius Pip talks about when he's contrasting working in broadcast media to working as a podcaster. 
one of the things I fell in love with with podcasting was I always felt with radio it was always competitive Capital hate Radio 1 and Radio 1 hate XFM or so on and so forth and it's all this competition whereas in podcasts it seems to be everyone everyone wants more everyone wants everyone to succeed I've been on on, on Adam Buxton's, on Richard Herring's, on numerous podcasts, and I've had them on mine. And there's all this, it feels like a family and you want more and more rather than, I don't want you to steal my audience. It feels like there's there's enough to go around. And Aaron Mankey talks about the other podcasters he knows as his friends, my friend Roman Mars, my this, this person, that person. And you get this sense of him feeling he's really part of this little vibrant community of people. Yeah, it doesn't really feel like a shark tank, does it? It feels like something is happening together where all of these people have a bit of input. And maybe that's more important in the end than this kind of ruthless independence. Also, that you know, success is so random. Mm. It drops on people, you know, in such unlikely ways, unless you have a lot of funding and backing behind you. And even success sometimes doesn't always seem to be a great thing. A lot of people talk about the burnout, the hours they have to do when they're working on their own like this. You know, it shouldn't be the be all and end all of podcasting. This is kind of perhaps the message in the end of this show. So the takeaway rule number five is. Be a part of the scene. Be a part of the scene and don't expect to make a whole load of money out of it and don't do it for that reason. Anyway, this has been For Your Ears Only. I'm Martin Spinelli. And I'm Lance Dan. If you want to follow us on social media, we're at Ears Only Podcast. And we also have a website, which is earsonlypodcast.com. And we also have a book. Yes, we also have a book, and it's called Podcasting the Audio Media Revolution, and that's now out with Bloomsbury. Next week, we're going to be talking about ethics and how they might be changing in the world of podcasting. And that's the end of the show. It's over, and now we'll, we'll listen to Jack reading the credits. Without a trace of authenticity. For Your Ears Only was produced by Jack F. Dewars and Ella Gray Thomas. This episode was written and presented by Lance Dan and Martin Spinelli. And Martin was also our executive producer. Andrew Duff created our sound. Martin and Lance would like me to clarify that this episode of For Your Ears Only was not brought to you by any of the personality defects portrayed in these sketches. These were, in fact, fictional neuroses that were made up. Mostly. For Your Ears Only was, in fact, brought to you with support from Arts Council England, Bloomsbury Publishing and the School of Media, Film and Music at the University of Sussex and the School of Media at the University of Brighton. Our distribution was made possible by Reframe of the University of Sussex and Resonance FM. And we had support in our initial interviews from a British Academy, Leverhulme Research Grant. For more information, please visit earsonlypodcast.com. <laughs>